0: Are you one of the three quarters of people struggling with a fear or anxiety around public speaking? Do you wish you could communicate more effectively, develop more meaningful relationships, grow your business and access greater opportunities? Welcome to Simon Speaks, a public speaking podcast with me, your host, Simon Day. In this series, I'll draw on my own experience from terrified teenager to UK award-winning speaker and communications coach as well as speaking to a number of special guests, all with one object in mind, to help you communicate more effectively. Ready to grow? Let's get started. Hello everybody and the warmest of welcomes to Simon Speaks, a public speaking podcast with me, your host, Simon Day. This is episode 8 of the podcast and I am delighted today to introduce A great interview that I held recently with a good friend of mine, Joshua Hawkhead. I've called the title of the podcast episode, The Quest for Inclusion. During the COVID-19 pandemic, we've heard a lot of phrases around things like isolation, lockdown and social distancing. While these are good and necessary where health needs to be preserved, one possibly dangerous side effect is that it impacts on our relationships with other people. I don't really like the phrase social distancing. We need to keep physical distancing from people, but socially we need each other now more than I fear we ever have done before. I talked to Josh recently about the quest for inclusion. Josh is a specialist leader of education and a special educational needs coordinator in the secondary education sector. Whilst a lot of the things that he's going to share are applicable directly to the education sector, there are so many things and principles and insights that he shares here that are applicable to all of us. We are going to need to make our organisations and our individual attitudes more inclusive than ever before. And I'm grateful to Josh for what he shared in this interview because I think it's priceless. Enjoy the interview and I hope you take as much from it as I did. Hello everybody from wherever you are tuning in from, welcome to this episode of Speak with Simon and I am really pleased to see you to welcome somebody that I've known for quite a few years now, uh, in a number of capacities, used to work for him, uh, now work with him, but ultimately he's become a very good friend of mine and he is someone that you are going to learn an awful lot from. So Joshua Hawkehead, the warmest of welcomes to Speak with Simon, how are you at the moment and how is lockdown treating you and your family?
1: Uh, very good, Simon. Um, lockdown is a complete pain in the backside. However, uh, we must do and we must uh, get through it. I think a lot, a lot of people in older generations went through a lot worse. So we we can stay inside with our technology, and our television, and our exercise outside, um, without the fear of being killed by an opposing side. So in the grand scheme of things, lockdown, we just have to get through it. It's fine.
0: I think that's very, very well said. And you raise a good point in terms of I wonder if when we're telling our children and grandchildren, I hope this isn't the thing that we tell them with the hardest about our lives. Otherwise, we've <laughs> not really been, been tested, have we? Uh, but there is also some exciting news in your family at the moment, I know of.
1: Yes. <laughs> well, tell us more. Uh, my wife is 30 weeks pregnant. Um, She's very determined to ensure this is not called a lockdown baby because we found out before lockdown. Yeah. Um, Yeah. She's due in September for child number two.
0: Very exciting news. And and obviously everybody I'm sure listening will will join me in wishing you the very best and that everything goes well for that. And before we we dig into the main topic that, that I know we're going to cover today, I'd like people to get to know you a little bit better. Uh, in a way that I know you quite well, and it's something that we've done a lot over the years, but I think there's something really telling in it that I think we can delve into and learn from. Uh, I want to talk about Park Run because I know we're missing it because we're not doing it at the moment. Uh, yeah. But over the last four years, you've been on quite a, an extraordinary journey with it. Uh, tell, tell us a little bit more about how that journey's unfolded and what you've perhaps learned in the process.
1: So we moved to Leeds in 2013. Um, we lived in Halifax before and then Barnsley before that. Um, and my wife, so we decided she started, wanted to start running early, late 2015. She, uh, started Slimming World and in Slimming World there are, uh, I can't remember what they're called. You get points for doing exercise and she decided she was going to start a couch to 5k. Mm. Uh, I thought she weren't going to carry on and it was just going to be one of those things that someone starts and, and doesn't finish. Uh, but she finished and she carried on. And the crux of it was that she started doing parkrun and she could do parkrun faster than I could do parkrun. And mm. that was really annoying. So the New Year's resolution 2016 was to be able to run five kilometers faster than my wife. So I rang you up and said, um, have you heard of this thing called parkrun? And you said, yes, it's been around about 10 years. <laughs> yeah. And I thought it were a new thing. Mm. Um, so we found the nearest parkrun to us, which was Oakwell Hall, which in hindsight is, is not the greatest parkrun to start doing parkrun. It is, imagine, a country park that is quite possibly the hilliest thing I've, I had done at the time. Mm-hmm. So then the saturday came around Part run is saturday at nine o'clock in england uh, it's, it's always a saturday it's at other times in different countries and we got up that saturday morning about half past seven and i believe it was minus two degrees i also believe it had rained heavily the night before and it was continuing to drizzle that morning Of course, I rang you up with every excuse under the sun, and you convinced me to go and do it. Anyway, um, so we got round Parkrun in the mud and the trenches and the loose rocks and the slippy tarmac in 34 minutes, which for, if you take the average Parkrun time of 29 minutes, 34 minutes is actually pretty good. Um, However, we knew we could do better. So throughout 2016, I continued to go to parkrun, you sometimes joined us, um, I dipped under 30 minutes in February, so from January to February, knocked about five minutes off, it helped that the weather was a lot nicer that day, mm. um, then in July, obviously the heat is not ideal running temperatures, but the temperature that day was good, the the conditions were good and dipped under 27 minutes. Um, In September of the same year, dipped under 26 minutes and in April the following year, dipped under 25. Finally achieving what is still my PB in September, 18 months after I started running. Um, So I think the, the moral of the story is with enough determination and with enough consistency one can make a vast improvement to which whatever you decide to do
0: Mm. it's profound and it's very characteristic of, of the kind of person i know you to be and i also think it's a wonderful life lesson as you've just described if you put your mind to something and you are determined and consistent enough then you can make that improvement. I mean, if you to knock over 10 minutes off your park run time within an 18-month period is is extraordinary. I, I, I don't know of many cases of that happening, uh, certainly in people that I've ever spoken to about it. And, and it is that combination of you've got a purpose, you've got a drive, you've got the willingness to, to, to see yourself improve and succeed. And what I like about park run is it offers you a very unapologetic consistent yardstick that you can measure yourself against nine o'clock on a Saturday it's the same distance it's the same course and and sometimes you get the variables like the weather and whether or not you've had a takeaway the night before but you put yourself against that measure and, and you see how far you've, you've progressed and I think that's equally applicable in, in any area, area of life and and it has been quite a privilege to watch that process over the last few years to see that, that that's just one area of your life that you've you've refined, and I know for a fact that you take that attitude into other areas of your work and your life, and you have that impact on on other people as well. Uh, so I think it's a great a great
1: characteristic that you've got. Mm, what's what's fantastic though about Parkrun is it's not about the numbers. And after the I got my personal best in 2017, uh, my first child was born in January of 2018. Um, and as you know, I did my mile PB on the night my child was born. Yeah. Um, did the mile PB? Went to the hospital. Six hours later, he was here. And there's lots of pictures of me in my winter running gear holding a brand new baby. Um, but what's what I've learned since then is that parkrun is inclusive and you can go to any parkrun and i i've done 143 runs at 45 different events and each event you go to even though you're a stranger we we're called tourists at parkrun they are actively welcomed we went to northern ireland recently before lockdown and we were the only english people there and they cheered for us all the way around and you don't really get that anywhere else Mm. And yeah, there's the faster runners, there's the people that that come first in 16 minutes. But Parkrun is a is equally about the people that take an hour. It's equally about um, the guy at Dewsbury Parkrun with cerebral palsy that took an hour and a half. Mm. That's what that's what Parkrun's about. It's not really about the numbers, although the numbers make it addictive.
0: There are an awful lot of things you can do with the numbers if you tinker around a lot with Chrome extensions, which I know you do. Yeah. But, but I, 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 love, I love that, and I think that's such a, an important truth that we can easily lose sight of, is that, yes, you have something to measure yourself against if you're a numbers person, but also there is that side of it where when you go to a park run, it doesn't matter who you are, how old you are, what race you are, what gender you are, what conditions you've got. It's really? about I'm here to, in some way, perform some exercise and make my life better and, and I think people mm-hmm. recognize that and I think I agree with you I think it is one of the most inclusive things that I've, I've ever been part of and I think that's a really nice summary and a nice bridge into what we're going to talk about today because we are going to talk about inclusion and inclusivity and how perhaps we need to be considering during this lockdown period how to make our own biases our own organizations uh, and our own attitudes a bit more inclusive because I think you probably agree and a lot of people will. We only have to look at recent events in the world to realise that we have got a long way to go as regards being inclusive. Tell me a little bit more about your I mean I I know (laughs) because I work with you, but many people won't. Tell tell them a little bit more about your work and and how inclusion applies to what it is that you're doing uh, at the moment, what you have been doing, I know, for the last few years.
1: Okay. So a brief history. Um so I did a maths degree at the University of Manchester first class in twenty eleven. Um and then around the second year I did some teaching experience at a local school in Manchester and I kinda of got the bug from it from there. It's teaching is um the I th- I'm not going to say the biggest sacrifice, but it is a huge sacrifice, teaching. And it's a really good one. Mm -hmm. And I found that at the tender age of 20 years old um, at university. Teaching is, is really infectious. And if you really want to do it, you can make it really good. You can make it great. So after 2011, I decided to do a teaching degree at Sheffield Hallam University, and uh, got my first teaching post in Leeds in uh, a relatively new academy trust. Um, Now it's it's nationally renowned. In my first year of teaching, I applied to become an assistant. So I'm a maths teacher, uh, an assistant leader of maths, um, which I got, and then in my third year of teaching. So, I, I, in my second year of teaching, I applied to become a Senko. So, in my third year of teaching, I was in a middle leadership position in school. And at that point, I didn't quite know what it was, except that it was helping some of the most needy kids. So, then I've, I've been a Senko now for around eight years, I think, and coming up to my eighth year of being a Senko. And again, if you don't want to do it then you're not going to be a good Senko (laughs) you've got to really jump in legs first and, and immerse yourself in it or else you're not going to you're not going to do it right and that's the journey I've been on is what is what is it what is it in schools what is the most important thing in schools is it teaching and learning is it um, social and emotional welfare? Is it personal progress? Or is it a mixture of all of those things? And being a Senko, you see every single angle of school, every single angle. Um, it's one of those weird jobs where you are on your own. There's only you. And you join in everyone else's meetings is the way I see it. I, joining heads of department meetings you join in heads of year meetings, you join in leadership meetings, um, you join in parental meetings. But I suppose, like the piano in an orchestra, you are one and your own, and that is it. And the, the burden, if that's what we are to call it, lies there, lies with that. And that's really important.
0: And in my experience of teaching as well, I know for a fact that like any other profession that you that you enter, you have a choice to either do the bare minimum and coast and, and get by, or you can, as you've just turned it, throw yourself into the deep end and really invest in what it is you're about. And the special education needs coordination role is not an easy one. And, and I've seen you do it long enough to know that it, the demands are immense. But but it, it, you do it because I, I know you well enough to know that you are driven by a sense of moral justice on behalf of those students that you serve because they are what I like to call innocent but not equal. That there's nothing that they've done to deserve the the challenges that they face, and yet they are they are unequal. They're not they don't have the same privileges or the same advantages that other students have. So we, talk, when we're in schools and when we're in any organisation, in fact, we talk about inclusion. What does inclusion look like as part of your role? What What is it you're striving to achieve within your, your work and your organisation in terms of inclusion? What are your main desires and objectives for it?
1: So in, inclusion, quite simply, is making sure everyone is included. And I, th- I believe if you Google the definition, that's what it says everyone is included now that's fine but if you have um let's say for example a child with no right arm and they have to be included like everyone else in the act of writing with their right hand they can't do that because they don't have a right hand There's an old analogy of, um, and people will have seen it, um, if you judge a fish by its ability to climb a tree, the fish will always fail. And that's equality. Equality is everyone has to climb a tree. However, if you judge the fish on what it's good at, salmon swimming upstream in a river, for example, monkeys climbing trees, elephants storing a load of water in the trunk, then that is equitable and that is inclusion. Mm. So if we expect every single child to leave secondary school with a set of eight GCSEs at grade five or above, that's equal. Mm. The bar is equal for everyone. Mm. But some kids aren't going to be able to do it. And I'm quite outspoken in that opinion. We've got to realize that some children excel at different things, and inclusion is making sure that they excel at those things, not the things that the government insists that they want them to excel at. Mm. So inclusion is for me taking each individual child and making sure they excel at what they're good at.
0: Mm. I think that's, that's really well put and I, it's a drum I beat a lot and you know that I beat it, but, but public speaking and, and communication is, is a skill set that we don't teach enough in schools and it's a skill set that I think some students will excel at where others don't. I, I know for a fact that from teaching English in the past and, and up to now that there are some students who simply will not be able to sit in an exam for two hours and write a critique on a piece of Victorian poetry. That's just not for them. But we have a speaking and listening module in English towards the end of year 10. And I just had that a few months ago with some of my students and I got them to write a speech on a topic they were passionate about. And students that I knew could barely write a paragraph on a poem stood without notes and delivered me a very eloquent, very passionate, very articulate speech on a subject because it meant something to them. And when they go to a job interview, it's not going to be about can you write a critique of Victorian poetry? although some students will be able to do that very well. It's, can you fit in our team, explain yourself? And it's a different skill set. And although it's not primarily focused on in exams, I will keep on having opportunities in lessons or outside of classrooms to teach students how to communicate, because I think that is part of of my mission of inclusion, is to make sure that that breadth of education is, is being delivered. In in your opinion, what do you think are the biggest mistakes that people are making at the moment, or or the biggest barriers that we need to get over in order to improve our delivery of of inclusivity to people?
1: So, by law, schools have to be inclusive. Um, There's a law called the Equalities Act 2010, which insists that everyone should be included. Uh, And that's not just for schools, so that incorporates race, religion, um ethnicity, etc. It's not just schools. Uh, so the Equalities Act is half of the policy that I have to adhere to in schools. The other half is the Children and Families Act 2014, um, which sets out the law for special educational needs and disabilities in schools. The biggest problem in schools is simply putting on a badge. So, Matt Hancock very recently was criticized for making a carer's badge and he wore it on his lapel for a number of the COVID 19 briefings. It was criticized heavily because he wore that badge before proving himself. Mm. Um, and he said, I am with you, care workers, before actually telling us what he was about. Mm. So the biggest barrier to schools is actually realising they're not inclusive. Mm. Um, And it's the old adage of not knowing what you don't know and knowing what you don't know and then knowing what you know. I read that in a book very recently. You'll be able to tell me which book it
0: is. Again, I think I've heard it, but I can't remember the book. Yeah.
1: And if you don't know that you're not inclusive, then there's no way you can become inclusive. Mm. And it takes for someone in my other role as a specialist leader of education mm-hmm. to come in and actually say that. Actually, with the greatest of respect, you're not being inclusive right now. You need to do this.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, the, the biggest the biggest barrier is someone saying they are inclusive. We are an inclusive school. We are an inclusive workspace. But to an outsider, it's blindingly obvious that the they're not or they not as good as they could be
0: mm. Mm. when when a school or an organization is being inclusive is there a way to measure it in terms of quantitative results or is it just something you can feel when you walk into a place
1: Hmm. I don't think you can measure inclusion with exam results Hmm. because not every child's version of inclusion involves exams. Someone doing well at school, which is what we should all be aiming for, a child needs to do well at school. Hmm. That, for some children, could mean surviving school, getting through from year one, to year 11 and getting through. Mm. There are some autistic children that I know that scraped through and that was a massive achievement because they passed school. Mm. There are some children that get to secondary school and cause the teachers a massive nightmare and then they get to year 11 with the right support and the right motivation and they achieve really well there was a child at my school in leeds uh that i worked at previously autistic boy um education health and care plan the highest level of SEN. came in in year seven decided school wasn't for him tried to throw himself downstairs it was it was really lucky he did that outside my office um because i was able to catch him and that that hurt my shoulders (laughs) It wasn't a light boy. Caught him, brought him round, he did it again. Caught him, brought it round, did it again. By year eleven, that child was playing the drums in a musical in which I was part of. That's the progress. Mm. You can't measure inclusion by exam results. It's just not it's just not possible. However, if inclusion is this, inclusion is If an outsider walked into a school and didn't know there was anyone with any disability in that school, then that would be inclusion.
0: Mm.
1: If an outsider walked into a classroom and every child was working independently, which is possible, every single child, no matter what ability, mixed ability classes, support in the classroom by a teaching assistant, fine. Teacher supporting and that outsider didn't know which child or which children had differences, that that would be perfect inclusion. Because every child is making progress in that classroom. Every child. Now of course you can you can dig deeper and the special educational needs children with cognition difficulties might be given a colour in an exercise then that wouldn't. That would be ticking a box, which is the badge-wearing thing. We're not about ticking a box. As I say in Kawhi, you have to jump through so many hoops, so many, uh, so much red tape, so much everything. But in the classroom, none of that matters. You've got to do what's right. And if every child is working on something that is pushing them, then that is right, that is inclusive.
0: That's really nicely articulated and expressed. And and, uh, I know that from my own experience of teaching in a certain classroom, you could have two students sat next to each other. And one of them could have just got hold of the question and just written a page because that's what they can do. And the student next to them might have been given a model and a scaffold and some sentence starters and some words they need to include and might have managed to put together a paragraph. And it's being as proud of one student as the other because you know that they've both achieved what they were capable of in the time that, that you spent with them. And I've had that experience, and, and you can't measure that on a graph. You can't measure that on a, on a spreadsheet, but you can measure it if you were to ask that student, What does that teacher do for you? What does school mean to you? And I'm thinking about that boy you just mentioned where you think about year seven when he was tr- trying to, to get himself out of school. If you'd have said to him, What does school mean to you then? you'd have got a very different answer to the end of year 11 when he's just played the drums in a musical and hmm. and you you can't measure that in any way other than how it feels for the individuals involved and i think that's such a an important thing but but at the root of it all is the care and is is the concern for the individual and and if if you haven't got that i don't think you can ever be truly inclusive and i certainly don't think you should be in the education sector but hmm. but i think inclusion at at its root is a certain level of empathy where you can empathise, but then just genuine care and a desire to, to help people uh, as far as you, you possibly can. I, I don't know if you feel the same, I'm sure you probably do, but but I was very saddened recently when I when I looked at the news and, and I was reading about things that are going on at the moment um, across the oceans, but, but, but around the world in terms of race and still in terms of um, sexuality and, and so many other ways in which we divide each other. And, and we're not inclusive why do you think the world at large is struggling with this concept and, and what can we do about it do you think um
1: so we're talking about black Lives matters i think mm. uh we're talking about um lgbtq plus um you know we're talking about women i think there are some really deep-rooted prejudices amongst people who are two generations above us. Mm. And education is the key to that. So education is the key to bringing families out of poverty. Education is the key to people not holding prejudice the black lives matters thing really interested me because the first time I saw well white life matters too I thought yeah white lives matter and black lives matter and you know what I'm I'm not ashamed to admit I needed to do a bit of research on black lives matter Mm -hmm. I needed to do that because as white males English white males born into families that cared about education, Mm. I think we're the most privileged people around. Mm. Um, Certainly my wife's a female. That's an automatic marker. Shouldn't be, obviously. Mm. Um, I've got, I work, we work in a school that's 88% Pakistani Muslim. They've got a load of markers against them. Mm. So I, I'm not ashamed to say I did a lot of research on Black Lives. I, I spent days thinking about it, reading articles by white people and by black people and by Asian people, you know. And uh, one particular person, black person, stood out, and that's Lewis Hamilton. And I'm a massive Formula One fan, mm. massive Formula One fan. I'm so happy that Formula One is back this weekend in Austria. And you know what? I don't care that they're doing Austria twice in a row because at least I get to see really fast cars going around the track. But Lewis Hamilton is the only black driver on the grid,
0: hmm.
1: is the only black driver to be a world champion and he's about to become the greatest driver of all time if he wins this year. And Lewis Hamilton said, actually, why am I the only black person on the grid? Why am I here? And what's everyone else's excuse? Why mm. haven't? What are the barriers for everyone else? And again, it's it's a lot of badge wearing, but we've got to really think about Black Lives Matter in particular. There's, we can take the need to show support. We can take the need to show support. Don't have a problem with that at all. What we actually need to do is get the people that matter to make the decisions that matter. Mm-hmm. And in Britain, that's a load of white men in Whitehall that need to make those decisions, which is quite ironic. There's a beautiful analogy about Black Lives Matter, and that is there are two houses side by side, and one house is on fire, and the other house is not on fire. And a fire engine pulls up, fire, fire person a person gets out and uh, starts pumping water on the house that's on fire. Now, to us, that seems a pretty, uh, pretty normal thing to do. A house is on fire, so let's try and put it out. So an observer comes to the firefighter and says, but what if my house catches fire? And the firefighter says, well, if your house catches fire, then I'll try and put your house out too. Okay. But my house is at greater risk of catching fire if that house is on fire. The firefighter says, yes, but this house is currently on fire. Okay. So the observer says, well, why don't you put water on my house to prevent it catching fire? And the firefighter says, well, if I do that, then this house will burn down. And that's a really interesting analogy because We can say white lives matter. I mean, of course, white lives matter, but white people are not under attack right now.
0: Hmm.
1: Black people are under attack, especially in the USA. I would like to think that we're a bit better in Britain, but certainly in the USA, they've got an incredibly racist president. They've got a lot of ingrained prejudices, especially in the South. And really it's not on, mm. it's really not on because black people and gay people and women and Asian people and Inuits and Native Americans and everyone else have the same rights. And it, it, I can't imagine not employing someone because they're black. Just can't do it. I can't see it in my head. There's a young boy, um, there's a young boy in the news today called Tony and he was abused as a child and that's also not on. We couldn't put him all in the same category because the people that are abusing black people, the people that are abusing children, this boy was abused so badly that he had to have both of his legs amputated. And he's now wearing pros- uh, prosthetic legs, which is a good learning story for my child. Why does that boy have metal legs and doesn't have toes? Interesting learning point. But that kid just has just done a ten-kilometer walk over thirty days and raised a million pound for the hospital. He shouldn't have had to do that. He should have had. He should have had a normal upbringing with good parents Mm. and we need to really, and I know this is a rather long answer. We need to really, we need to get a grip. We really need to get a grip as, as a human race and sort it out because why was it, why were it a massive thing that Obama was the first black president? Why were that big? Why were that massive? It shouldn't have been massive. That should be normal. Margaret Thatcher, although decisive, the first female Prime Minister, why did it take so long? You know, it's it's not on. And as you can probably tell, I feel quite passionate about that.
0: And I think it needs more people to feel passionate about it. Um, I, I was listening to Radio 5 Live the other day. Um, I, I don't know if you saw, but they, they flew a, a White Lives Matter uh, play Burnley. over Burnley at Manchester City, yeah, and and the the presenter on on Five Live was from Burnley. That was his hometown, and he was very upset about that, and he voiced it quite passionately, and he read out quite a lot of statistics about why we don't need to say that white lives matter because inherently they're not, they're just not as under attack as black lives, as you mentioned, and. You, you've you got all these statistics about how much more likely you are to be stopped and searched or arrested or how much less likely you are to get a job and how much more likely you are to end up in a frontline job that puts you at greater risk of uh, catching the, the, the virus that's going around now, which is why we're seeing the statistics around black and minority, ethnic groups suffering more heavily with it. He mm. went through all these statistics and he just said, we don't need to say that what, it, it's obvious that white lives matter in comparison to Black Lives, because of the situation that's that's happening, and they just need to matter. You know, to say that something matters is not a huge statement. It's just that you treat them with equal regard. And uh, <clears throat> I was watching a, a black comedian uh, on on online the other night, and he was basically saying that it, in the past, you know, Black Lives Matter. He said, "Why is this a controversial statement?" It, you know, we're trying to get the bare minimum here. You know, black lives exist. Can we start there? And he was talking about how people are finding it controversial just to say that something matters. Uh, and he said that even when they were fighting for civic rights, you know, some groups were fighting for equal rights. Black people couldn't even get equal rights, so they went for civic rights. And it just alarms me and continues to alarm me, as I'm sure it does you. And like you say, education is, is the answer. And, and I've, I've seen interviews with people saying this is as easy to unlearn as it was to learn in the first place. Nobody's born racist. Nobody's born sexist or ageist or having a hostility towards other religions. We're not born that way. We learn it from, well, three things, really, our environment, our upbringing and our choices. And, and if we can get a combination of those things working in the right way, then we can alter some some quite important attitudes. But let's say that there was one thing that you could have everybody start doing from tomorrow to make the world a more inclusive place. If there was one thing that you could say to everybody, this is what we need to do from tomorrow, what would that one thing be?
1: Hmm. That That is interesting because that's probably a doctoral thesis, isn't it? Um I think we need to smile more. I think we need to. I think we need to smile more and try and be nice to people. There's a, there's a, there's a, there's quite a limit to how nice you can be to someone before they really know you. But at least start off being nice to people. That's my entire mo. Is if I want something doing, I'm going to ask nicely first and you know 99 times out of 100 it gets done because people want to do it I would say if we are we are nice to each other we smile to each other that's not a lot to ask and we're consistent about it as well I'd I'd say the biggest thing that anyone can be is consistent in their approach because if they're consistently good then that's obviously good If they're consistently bad, then that's something to improve on. It's when someone is bouncing between the two, Mm -hmm. it's really tough because you know they can be good, but why can't they do it all the time? And that's not to say that people have off days, you know, my days, I have off days Mm -hmm. where, you know, teaching goes down the pan. All sorts of interacting with people doesn't happen,
0: mm.
1: but it's about recognizing that as well and making amends the day after. Yeah. Uh, the biggest thing, the biggest thing you can do is say sorry.
0: I think that's really key, and and I, I talk about this a lot, but but for me, if somebody asks you how you are doing and and you just say, oh, I'm fine, nothing much happening. I don't think that's real communication. I, I think real communication is, is the, the courage to tell your story without needing to hide the details, to tell yeah. about decisions you've made and maybe why you regret them. It's the courage to say to people, I'm passionate about this thing and not apologise for being passionate about something. But it's also the courage to say sorry when you've made a mistake. That, for me, is real communication because it comes from the heart and it matters and it acknowledges that sometimes we don't always get it right. And too often, and and, I mean, you've known me long enough to know that I don't always get it right, but but I will sometimes project um, what I feel is like my suffering in life. I will project that onto other people. And I think we all do. Sometimes something goes wrong in our own lives and we feel pain and therefore other people around us can't not feel pain because we don't want to be on our own. So we project our misery onto other people. And like you say, it's having the courage to go back and say, I got it wrong yesterday. and I'm sorry about that. But it's also recognizing when we are tempted to do that and to try gradually over a period of time to get out of the way of, of doing that and try and find alternative channels. And I know within the last even few years of my own life that on occasions where I have been suffering with something and I've found an opportunity to be kind to someone or to ask for help or to serve somebody perhaps that's in greater need than I am at the, that time, I have there either found the strength to deal with my own challenges or I found a solution. And I think it takes character and I think it takes courage and it takes consistent practice. But I think there is something really noble in in that pursuit of recognising that we're not on this earth to make other people suffer. We're on this earth to make other people's lives better because in the, that process we make our own lives better. And that that's, I think, what I've spotted in the time that I've known you. And I think that's what I have always admired about you as a professional, as a person, is that you are about that pursuit of making people's lives better, especially people's lives who would otherwise be far worse off. Uh, and, and
1: I, yeah, and the... I've lost my train of thought. <laughs> this happens quite a lot. Uh, <laughs> More so now. <laughs> I think as a Senko, I'm just getting older, but I think as a Senko, you've got so much stuff in your brain, it gets lost. Let me think what I was about to say. Mm. Yeah, so being kind to people. Sometimes in my line of work, that there's got to be times where instruction has to be given. Mm. And I think many people can take that as me being unkind mm. there There are sometimes, especially within SEA and legislation, the deadlines are simply black and white,
0: yeah
1: and if those deadlines haven't been made, then metaphorically, my head is on the block, so there are some times where you have to make the real management decisions you have to make. Actually, you messed up today mm. and you need to make amends. And then you find a way back to find something the next day or the next. You you find the first thing you, you can praise and then you praise them for that. Mm. And you build up that, you build it back up. And that's what's been hard during COVID is those decisions have had to go via email. Those management instructions have gone via email and then there's no way to kind of claw that back and and it's quite tough
0: Mm. yeah and i suppose it's also tough trying to encourage people to adhere to a deadline when we haven't exactly had the best template of meeting a deadline in our country over the last few years as you well know Uh, that that can be challenging and and that can also undermine what what it is you're trying to do and undermine what a deadline truly is if you see it yeah reset so many times. So that, that can be a challenge, but I think that ultimate form of kindness does sometimes involve telling somebody that they haven't hit path, that they haven't done what was expected of them. Because I think if you let that slide to and I'm talking now equally about students as, as well as adults that, that you might absolutely manage within an organization, is that you have to let them know when they're not fulfilling their potential. and and kindness i think sometimes is recognizing that you have to have expectations of somebody in order for them to progress and if you're not Mm -hmm. consistent with those expectations you're actually doing them a disservice and and you know sometimes you do have to be firm with that but like you say the kindness then is showing that increase of care and and, all right how can we rectify how can we move forward from here um and and sometimes that communication can be very delicate very sensitive but it is something that, that needs to happen. and needs to happen more candidly, I think, sometimes than, than we do. Uh, I think that's been such an instructive conversation. And I think many organisations and, and leaders will, will listen to this and, and recognise if they are truly honest with themselves, there is more to be done to make mm. all people and, and organisations more inclusive. But I want to start to bring this to a close now. by am moving things back to you a little bit um, okay. and, and ask you some questions. I, I want to first ask you, if you look back over the the time that you've had, probably you know, let's say the last decade or so since you started teaching, studying. Um, if you think about where you were, perhaps let's say twenty eleven to now, what's one thing that that you've done that you've achieved that you're that you're really proud of, and, and why does that matter to you?
1: So twenty eleven is when I got my degree. Um, in fact, in fact, it was yesterday in twenty eleven. When I find out, when I found out the uh, final grade, because it came up on my Facebook memories, um, which is rather interesting. Fun fact, um, and as you know, I love fun facts. Yeah. I passed my degree by zero point zero four percent, so I I got a first class degree by zero point zero four percent, but the certificate still says first class, and I'm fine with that. <laughs> yeah. So I'm proud of that. I'm proud of that, that, that degree, a lot of people say, well, you either get maths or you don't get maths. Mm. And actually, when you get to degree level of maths, you either work hard at maths or you don't work hard at maths.
0: Mm.
1: And I worked hard and got the degree. Um, my wife worked probably doubly as hard and still got the degree, you know. Um, going back to inclusion, it was her actually that it's her actually that I'm most proud of, I think. We figured out she was dyslexic, um, quite, I'd say, moderate to severely dyslexic in the second year of university. And she still passed a degree. And she, she got three years at A level and got a, uh, an upper second degree from a red brick university. And I'm really proud of that. I'm really proud of what she did and what she's gone on to be um she's a qualified teacher as well um, and she's taken a step back from a career that she didn't really want anyway uh, to to bring up well two two children one and one and three quarters of a child um although the first one feels like he's three at the minute mm. three children <laughs> um, I'm also I'm really proud that I finished the London Marathon in
0: 2018.
1: Yeah. Um, It was the hottest London Marathon on record. I think the peak temperature was 29 degrees. (laughs) And uh, I didn't faint or pass out. So that's an achievement. Mm -hmm. I would say from from a very young age, one of my uncles who was really successful, failed school miserably, but really successful in his life said if you, earn, if you earn the amount of money in thousands at your age is, then you're doing well.
0: Mm.
1: And although life's not about money, and it, re- and it really isn't, I think you can somewhat measure success by it. So I I have always earned above my age in thousands, and I, I'm really proud of that.
0: Mm.
1: And it's about working hard. It's about doing what you want to do, being really good at it, and striving to make it better. Mm. And that's the entire ethos.
0: I think it should be anybody's entire ethos. I think finding something that you're passionate about, something that wants to make the world a better place, and something that you are wanting to become better at, and that you work hard at, I think is what everybody's quest should be in, in life. And I think if everybody discovered that, whatever it is, I think the world would be a better place, because we would have lots of people. All doing what they really drew purpose from.
1: Mm.
0: That's really sound advice. I like that. What about I mean you've talked about your uncle? Do you have any other people that have been influential for you? Whether it's people that you've you've known or figures in, in the world at large that have been inspirational?
1: There is there's quite a few people that have done me a lot of favours. Um but one person that really strikes a chord with me and my moral purpose was a woman called Rita Pearson. Rita Pearson was a primary school headteacher in the Bronx in New York. Black woman, what I like to call proper black American woman, big woman taught with a really thick accent. She was a primary school head teacher in the Bronx. She died, unfortunately, uh, just after she delivered her famous uh, TED speech.
0: Yeah.
1: And it's that speech that I draw real inspiration from. What she said there is the marks, the lessons, the exams, they come second. What matters first is relationships. Mm. And she talks really eloquently about the power of relationship for about seven minutes. Now that struck a chord. I, I think I first watched that when it when it came out in 2013. She, it changed my entire view because I was brought up in school that your GCSEs matter. I remember my maths teacher saying, "You need to get this GCSE." Um, you know. But actually, the reason why I got my GCSEs at school, I didn't go to the best school in the world. In fact, I think Barnsley was the worst local authority in the country when I went. But there were some quite inspirational people there. The the head of maths at the time, Steve Coyle, was my maths teacher. The the head of music, Charlie Brammer. Real powerhouses at what they do really knew their craft back to front. And actually, it's, it, wasn't, it wasn't that. It wasn't that they were good teachers. It was they were really good at building relationships. And I, I am still in fairly distant contact with Mr. Brammer, as, as he will always be known. Now, um, you know, through the power of Facebook, I'm, I'm pretty sure we stalk each other's lives quite a lot. <laughs> Yeah, and, and
0: similarly, I, I still know of a couple of teachers that from my school days that, that I'm associated with and, and still see occasional updates from. And, and again, it was about the relationships. And, and I think about all of the the things I've been able to achieve since leaving school. And, and again, there are things that I'm proud of. But what I am proud of is the fact that they came as a consequence, largely, of the relationships i developed with people that helped me get there. People who had advice, mm. people who had experience, people who were willing to share that experience, and and I was keen enough to learn from. And that's really how I have shaped, been shaped and become a product of, of that is through those relationships with people. Mm. I, I think that's really critical. And and I think whatever organisation you're part of, whether it's in the education sector or elsewhere, relationships are are a key because when you are struggling or you do come up against a problem, it's often not you in and of yourself that's going to solve it. It's the you in conjunction with the people around you and if you don't have good relationships with those people that's going to be a heck of a lot tougher Um, yeah i think that's yeah really meaningful tell us a bit about i mean you've set so many goals and achieved so many goals over the last number of years and and i've been um really pleased to watch a lot of them but have you got any goals in mind now that you're working towards because you've done so many things with (laughs) education and and professional life have you got anything you're working towards at the minute
1: no, I'm just sitting back and putting my feet up, I think. That's uh that's where I'm at right now, I think. <laughs> um, you know, uh we have we talk about goals all the time.
0: Yeah.
1: I have a running goal currently where I want uh, a sub one hour fifty half marathon. Um I'm working towards that as we speak. I'm in a half marathon training plan as we speak. Yeah. Um Work-wise, you know what? I'm, I'm, I think I'm happy right now. I think there's a lot to do where I am, and that journey is going to be tough. It's going to involve a lot of difficult manoeuvres, but it is doable. It is doable. Um, yeah, there's, there's a lot to do currently. Um, And then family-wise, you know, we're expecting a a new child in September. Mm. That comes with its challenges, as you full well know. Mm. Um, (laughs) And really the focus there is making sure that both children and my wife are happy, healthy and safe. And that's all we can really hope for. Happy, healthy and safe. Fully
0: agree. Fully agree on all fronts. Yeah. and about yeah. children to know that two is, two is tough, but they eventually learn to care for each other when that happens. Yeah. That <laughs> <time>. <laughs> you've mentioned some really good advice that you've received. Are there any more kind of striking pieces of advice that you've received that have really affected the way that you work?
1: So I had, a, I had a mentor. So as previously mentioned, I was in my third year of teaching when I became a, a senior middle leader, whatever that might be. And prior to the first speech, I, I believe you were there. Were you there in 2013?
0: I was, yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: And the vice principal at the time of the school was my line manager, and he said, right, Josh, stand there. And it was at the front of the auditorium. No one there. I think it were about six o'clock in the morning. Stand there and say the first five sentences you're going to say. So I did it. And he said, that was really rubbish. Do it again. And he said, that was slightly better, but still really rubbish. I'm going to go and stand at the back. And I want you to say it in the quietest voice, such that I can still hear you. And at that point, you learn about projection. Mm. I remember that day that man was, was really inspirational for me. Um, yeah, really inspirational. Taught me quite a lot about rigor and doing the right thing. Yeah. But yeah, speaking as softly as you can, such that the back person can still hear, you can critique that because you are the public speaking person. (laughs) Well,
0: I, I know for a fact that you are somebody of, of very considerable experience and knowledge. And I, I've often said that people are like rivers full of substance, full of full of stuff to deliver. But the inability to communicate it effectively is like the dam across the river. And, and what you do when you learn a communication strategy like the ones you're talking about is you pull a stone out of that dam. And gradually you can communicate more and more of what you know, because you've got the tools to do it. And there comes a point at which eventually the dam just breaks away and you you don't yet, you don't ever think about how you're going to communicate anymore because you've gained the tools that you need. Mm. And and very much a lot of the work that I do uh, has been in my own life to remove that dam. And, And I've removed quite a lot of the stones, but I think there's still some left and I think there always will be. But what I find great joy in, is, as you know, is to help other people remove yeah. stones from their own dams because there are so many people out there with value to add that simply don't have the tools to have it heard. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's a problem on two fronts. It's, it's a problem with people and their own inadequacies, their own fears, their own anxieties about communicating, but also it's about inclusion. It's about does everybody have a seat at the table or does everybody have the opportunity to have their voice heard? Because you can let somebody sit at the table and not let them speak, and I think that's sometimes something that we don't we don't do well enough is let everyone speak.
1: There's a there's a great analogy, isn't there, about inclusion where um, you can invite everyone into the room, but if you ignore them, it's still not inclusive. Yeah. <laughs> Even though from the outside it looks inclusive because you've let them in.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and, and I've been able to watch over the last several several years of you of you doing your job and I've been in a, quite a few of your presentations where I've always known that you're a person of, of, of great knowledge and experience, as I say, but what I've also been quite privileged to observe is is that you have also become quite a, a powerful and effective communicator, that you you deliver what you know, that you deliver it in a way that's engaging and gets people to reevaluate what they're doing and makes them consider change and, and enact change. And that's what the heart of communication is all about. And, and that's what I'm really glad about and wish wish everybody could could get on a, a journey with. So you mentioned the advice. I think we, we've come to one of the final questions now, which is what's next for you? I mean, you've talked about a project where you're working, but what sort of services are you are you offering? I mean, you know, I know you're a specialist of education, I know that you you lecture, but tell me a little bit more about, about what it is you you contribute how you contribute it and, and how people can get in touch with you should they want input on your areas of expertise.
1: Okay. So the last one's the easiest. Um I am on LinkedIn. Um if you search for there'll only be one of me. That's the that's the uniqueness of my surname. Mm. Um so if you search for me, um you'll probably find me. If not, you can search me through Simon, I suppose, through you. Yeah. On, um on um I want everyone to be inclusive and how you go about that is completely your choice. However, like you just said, I was supposed to lecture this year at Leeds Trinity University uh, as a guest lecturer. However, because of COVID that got pulled, Um I can talk to individuals or groups of people. In fact, I'm mentoring one brand new Senko right now that just happened to contact me through Twitter. Um, I'm also on Twitter at Mr. Hawkhead. If you want to contact me that way, you know what? I am happy to help people if they're happy to help themselves. And if you want me to come to you um, in a professional manner, then you can get in contact with me through the Specialist Leader of Education Network at the Co-op Academies Trust. So, if you search for SLEs and the Co op Academies Trust, you'll find my name in there. And just contact me through that. And you know what? If you want some advice, contact me on the social networks and I'm sure we can figure something out. Mm-hmm. Like I said, I'm mentoring a brand new Senko now and she's really appreciative of the time. Mm-hmm. But as a new Senko, you need a lot of time. You need, a, you need a proper mentor that knows the stuff. Mm. And I'd like to think I'm somewhere on the journey of knowing my stuff.
0: So mm. I can vouch for that. You won't vouch for it, but I will. <laughs> I, I think it's been brilliant. And so if if, if you ask somebody listening who's, who's anything to do with the education sector, wants input on inclusion, you want a lecturer or you want somebody, if you're not in the education sector to come and talk about inclusion, Josh is your man, and, and having known you now for seven-plus years, at least, I've lost track of these numbers. Um, I, I, I can't endorse any more highly anyone else that I know because I don't think I've known anybody for longer, <laughs> apart from my wife, and I know enough about you to know that you are a man of character and of integrity and of some and somebody that is driven by, by those values that we've discussed today. So get in touch with Josh should you have any of those inquiries or questions. And I can only thank you for the time that you've given up today to to speak to us on on what is a critical topic at the moment, Um, but but sharing everything that you shared with yourself also, so thank
1: you. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure.
0: Thank you for tuning into today's episode of Simon Speaks, a public speaking podcast with me, your host, Simon Day. I hope that what you've learned in today's episode will help you become a more effective communicator as you put it into practice. You can visit my website simonspeaks.co.uk for more information, tips, articles and resources or to speak to me about working with me as a coach. I'm also available on Twitter and Instagram at underscore simonspeaks. I'm on LinkedIn and I also have a YouTube channel. Just search for Simon Speaks. Thanks again for tuning in today and I look forward to seeing you again next time.